Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Tuesday, February 4th, 2020. I'm Brian McCullough. Today... We finally know how big a business YouTube is. The tech angle on that Iowa caucuses mess is the only angle. MasterCard explains why it pulled out of Libra. And why has the U.S. government decided to break up Big Razor before it gets around to big tech? Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. Well, it turns out that as this earnings season winds down, it was actually Google who had the most interesting report. Alphabet overall reported Q4 net income of $10.67 billion, up from $8.95 billion last year, and its fiscal 2019 revenues came in at $162 billion, up 18% year-over-year. Quarterly revenue was a bit of a miss, coming in at 46.8%. $0.8 billion, which was slightly less than analysts expected. Alphabet's stock is down around 3.5% at the time of this recording. But that wasn't the surprise. The surprise was, for the first time ever, Google broke out revenue numbers for YouTube as well as its cloud division. But let's hit YouTube first, because for years, people have wondered how big a business YouTube actually was, and now we know. Alphabet said that YouTube ads generated $4.7 billion in revenue in Q4 and $15.15 billion in all of fiscal 2019, which was up from $11.16 billion in fiscal 2018. So, YouTube is a $15 billion business. YouTube contributes nearly 10% of Google's entire business. YouTube's ad business is about 20% the size of Facebook's. It is a six times bigger business than Twitch. And by itself, YouTube represents about 20% of the entire U.S. TV advertising spend. And quoting The Verge, Separately, Google says YouTube has more than 20 million subscribers across its premium, ad-free YouTube, and music premium offerings, as well as more than 2 million subscribers to its paid TV service. Alphabet says revenues from those products are bundled into the other category, which made $5.3 billion last quarter, and also includes hardware like Pixel Phone and Google Home speakers. That makes it hard to gauge the specific performance of any one product bundled under that category, end quote. But back to the YouTube-specific disclosures. How much has YouTube paid out to creators? That one's a little murky. On the earnings call, YouTube's CFO said they had paid out a, quote, majority of revenues earned via ads to creators. But we didn't get a dollar figure. YouTube did report $8.5 billion in content acquisition costs. One would imagine that that is where the payouts to creators is accounted for. I'm not saying that they paid out $8.5 billion to creators, but whatever they paid out, it is some portion of that $8.5 billion. Alphabet also, as I said, broke out revenue for its cloud division for the first time, saying that it generated $8.92 billion in fiscal 2019, up from $5.84 billion the year previous, which is impressive growth, 
But when you look at the overall numbers, remember that that's the full year of revenue for their cloud sector. And Microsoft just reported $11.9 billion for its cloud business in just the most recent quarter. AWS reported $9.9 billion for just the most recent quarter. So, you know, room to grow there, I guess. Also, as always, those other bets, revenue for everything from Verily to Fiber to Waymo rose to $172 million in the quarter, but losses jumped to $2 billion, up from $1.3 billion in losses year over year. So revenue miss, advertising business sort of meh, other bets, losses increasing. I think we can see why Alphabet chose to break out YouTube numbers now. It's sort of a way to say to investors, hey, Don't worry about all that. Look over here. Look at this monster business we've got over here. Yeah, it turns out there's a tech angle to the mess that's going on with the Iowa caucuses. In fact, the tech angle is kind of the whole story. As you've heard, it was an app that was at the root of the problem last night, an app that was supposed to make reporting the results of the caucuses quicker and easier. Turned out not so much. Well, who was behind this app? Quoting the Washington Post. A tech company affiliated with and funded by Acronym, a democratic digital nonprofit group that has rapidly expanded in recent years, was responsible for building the Iowa caucus app that contributed to delays in reporting Monday night's results in the first vote in the party's presidential race. Multiple democratic sources, including one of the presidential campaigns, confirmed the app's creator. State campaign finance records indicate the Iowa Democratic Party paid Shadow, a tech company that joined with Acronym last year, more than $60,000 for website development over two installments in November and December of last year. A Democratic source with knowledge of the process said those payments were for the app that caucus site leaders were supposed to use to upload the results to their locals. Gerard Nimaira a veteran of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, is the head of Shadow. He previously served as chief technology officer and chief operating officer of Acronym, according to his LinkedIn page. In 2019, David Plouffe, one of the chief architects of President Barack Obama's wins, joined the board of advisors for Acronym. Acronym spokesman Kyle Tharp put out a statement distancing the group from Shadow, saying that Acronym is merely an investor in the for-profit company, end quote. Hopefully by the time you are hearing this, the results of the caucus will have been made public. I just checked, and they still weren't available. Oh, and apparently this same app was supposed to be used in the upcoming Nevada primary. So, yay. Google has this service called Google Takeout, which allows you to download your data from Google Apps as backup for use with other services. Unfortunately, some users of Google Photos had videos that were backed up to takeout, exported and sent to complete strangers for a period of time between November 21st and November 25th of last year. Quoting 9to5Google, Google this evening began alerting takeout users about the quote, technical issue. From November 21st to November 25th of 2019, those that requested backups could have had videos in Google Photos, quote, incorrectly exported to unrelated users' archives, end quote. In requesting a backup, some of your videos, but not pictures, might be visible to random users that were also downloading their data through Google Takeout. The company did not specify what media was affected beyond, quote, one or more videos in your Google Photos account was affected by this issue, end quote. 
Google has been emailing users affected and says that less than 0.01% of Google Photos users who use Takeout were affected. Though it's also worth pointing out that 1 billion people use Google Photos. So potentially, with any snafu like this, even a small percentage of users could represent a large number of actual people. And also, if even one person's private video was sent to a complete stranger, isn't that basically the nightmare scenario of possible scenarios when it comes to photo and video storage? When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity. But user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Octa-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there is no compromise. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines, their family group chat, their crossword puzzles, just because they're available right now or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally no compromises here, because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. No more waiting awkwardly on hold with a receptionist. And these docs all have verified reviews from actual real patients. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated patient-reviewed credible doctors and specialists. I have personally used ZocDoc to find a podiatrist when I needed one for the first time ever in my life. Go to ZocDoc.com slash techmeme and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash tech meme zocdoc.com slash tech meme i've been waiting for something like this to emerge the financial times spoke to mastercard ceo ajay benga who detailed why exactly his company pulled out of the libra association basically benga says the company had concerns about how libra was morphing from an quote altruistic idea to calibra what he essentially called a proprietary wallet. Quote, Mr. Banga likes the idea of a global currency and joined the association of companies backing Libra, but concerns over compliance and the business model led him to withdraw. The association's key members would not give a hard commitment to, quote, not do anything that is not fully compliant with local law. 
He points to due diligence considerations such as know your client, anti-money laundering, data management, quote, all that. Every time you talk to the main proponents of Libra, I said, would you put that in writing? They wouldn't, end quote. He also did not see how Libra would make money and, quote, when you don't understand how money gets made, it gets made in ways you don't like, end quote. Finally, he was alarmed that Facebook had positioned Libra as a financial inclusion tool, but then proposed linking it to a proprietary digital wallet, Calibra. Quote, it went from this altruistic idea into their own wallet. I'm like, this doesn't sound right. For financial inclusion, the government has got to pay you in this currency. You've got to receive it as an instrument you can understand, and you have to be able to use it to buy rice and cycles. If you get paid in Libra coin, which goes into Calibras, which go back into pounds to buy rice, I don't understand how that works, end quote. Of course, there's also the small consideration that a global blockchain-based payment network, if it were to take off, would likely be an existential threat to a payments company like MasterCard. Workplace productivity software company Asana says that it is the latest tech company to file to go public via a direct listing. Asana has raised about $213 million to date, was last valued at around $1.5 billion, and has some pretty famous folks behind it. It was co-founded by Facebook co-founder Dustin Moskowitz, quoting Bloomberg, the company makes productivity and task management software for businesses. Its investors have included Facebook Chief Executive Officer Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan. Former U.S. Vice President Al Gore also has been a backer. Direct listings have been touted as a way for companies that don't need to raise new capital to go public, while also saving on fees paid to banks and allowing current investors to sell shares without waiting for a lockup period to expire. So far, direct listings have been used by only two major companies, Spotify and Slack, end quote. Asana is a much smaller company than either Spotify or Slack. So going public via direct listings suggests that Asana probably doesn't really need any big infusion of cash and probably just wants some liquidity for those fairly famous insiders. The global semiconductor industry had its worst slump in almost two decades last year as revenue fell 14% to $412 billion, the biggest drop since 2001 when the dot-com bubble burst. The culprit? That trade war with China and the United States, quoting Bloomberg. Memory chips were the hardest hit. Prices of those commodity chips fell as production outran demand. Memory revenue dropped 33% from 2018, led by declines in computer memory. All regions experienced a decline in demand. Sales in China, whose consumers and factories that supply finished products to the rest of the world account for more than one-third of global consumption of the electronic components, fell 8.7% according to the SIA. Sales in the Americas dropped the most of any region at 24%. The rate of decline last year abated with sales growing slightly in the fourth quarter from the preceding three-month period, the Semiconductor Industry Association said. For that to continue... China and the U.S. need to build on the Phase 1 trade agreement announced last month, end quote. The whole antitrust thing with big tech has gone quiet lately, as we're basically waiting for the investigations to wrap up, and whatever shoes that might drop actually drop probably later this year. But one quick note that they are still continuing, and that the DOJ's top antitrust official, McCann Del Rahim, 
has had to recuse himself from the DOJ's probe into Google because of a conflict of interest related to his past work for the company, quoting the New York Times. In 2007, Mr. Delrahim, who was in private law practice at the time, had a contract to lobby for Google's acquisition of the ad technology company DoubleClick, according to the people who spoke on condition of anonymity because the details are confidential. Quote, as the technology review progressed, Assistant Attorney General Makan Delrahim revisited potential conflicts with the previous work with the Department of Justice's Ethics Office. He and the Ethics Office have decided that he should now recuse himself from a matter within the tech review in an abundance of caution, end quote. No word, though, on why this recusal has happened now, given that the various probes have been going on for months. Mr. Delrahim apparently also did legal work and consulting work for Apple. But I would think that it would have always been notable that Mr. Delrahim basically lobbied for one of the biggest acquisitions that the whole breakup big tech crowd have been pointing to as a possible acquisition to retroactively break up the double-click acquisition by Google. Finally today, this is not really tech, as I always like to say, but... We have been talking about direct-to-consumer companies recently, so I wanted to note that the Federal Trade Commission is suing to block the $1.37 billion sale of razor startup Harry's to Edgewell, the parent company of the Schick razor brand. Quoting Recode, In evaluating the deal, the FTC looked at competition in what is called the wet shave market, basically razors used for face shaving but not including electric razors. It's not yet clear how the FTC may have defined the relevant market beyond that for this merger evaluation. According to the research firm Euromonitor, Gillette held 47% of the U.S. men's razor market in 2018 with Edgewell's brands, which include Schick and Wilkinson Sword, combining for 13.6% of the industry. The Harry's brand, which started selling online but now has a large presence in both Target and Walmart stores, had just 2.6% share at the time, according to Euromonitor. According to the FTC's complaint, published Monday afternoon, the agency saw Harry's arrival in brick-and-mortar retail chains, first Target and later Walmart, as the main impetus that forced Edgewell to lower prices on its Schick razors. Quote, In the end, competitive pressure generated by Harry's successful launches at Target and Walmart defeated Edgewell's plan to maintain prices, the FTC complaint alleges. By the end of 2018, Edgewell had reduced its prices significantly. End quote. So I guess the government has decided that it's going to break up Big Razor before it gets around to Big Tech. That is all for today. Given the tech angle I mentioned on the Iowa caucuses brouhaha, might I suggest this would be a good day to head over and check out the Election Ride Home podcast, because I'm sure Glenn will be explaining it all to you in greater detail. Talk to you tomorrow.